Hello and welcome to SciSection. My name is Emily O'Halloran and I am a journalist for SciSection Radio Show broadcast on the CFMU 93.3 radio station. We are here today with Dr. Richard Heinzel, the founder of the Canadian chapter of Médecins Sans Frontières, also known as Doctors Without Borders, he currently works as the Global Medical Director for World Care International. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Heinzel. Thanks, Emily. Great to be here. Um, so let's just jump right in. Do you think you could kind of start by giving us sort of an overview of your journey from maybe the point where you decided to go to med school to where you are now? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I'm from Hamilton originally, right? So I grew up with this uh, amazing university, McMaster, and their med school in the background. And both my mom and dad are psychologists. So that planted, obviously, the health bug and sort of a, their version of humanitarianism, if you will. And um, because uh, my dad was a psychologist, and then he went, went to McMaster and became the dean of students there. And so for many years, my dad was the dean of students. And I can actually remember as a young kid, uh, literally as a five-year-old, walking around the campus and falling in love with academics and McMaster. And so I didn't know exactly which path it would take me to, but it was pretty uh, amazing to end up there in medical school after, after uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the path I did take. Um, I mean, it, what happened was I went to undergrad at University of Toronto and, uh, you know, pretty straightforward, wanted to do medicine and uh, so I took all the sciences. And, uh, but even then at that point, started becoming extremely interested in international health, global health, and sort of seeing the whole world that way. And so I did some work with UNICEF and with some other committees and that grew it. And then of course, in the summers, I traveled back in the day when you could hitchhike all over Europe for a few dollars a day. And I did that. And, and that sort of has been a theme in my life is always combining health and medicine with travel, if mm. you will, and putting that all together. So so that's, uh, that took me to uh, McMaster, and, um, uh, and then I got into the medical school there, and that was uh, obviously life-changing, extraordinary school, and um, you know, that, that led me towards uh, Doctors Without Borders. So what specifically um, about Doctors Without Borders kind of drew you to the organization? You know, I mean, a lot of people at that stage, this is in the, in the, uh, the late 80s, right? Uh, uh, this was the time of yuppies and sort of consumerism and people getting rich on the stock market and stuff like that. And then there was a sort of a counter offering to that. A bunch of us sort of were much more focused on humanitarianism and trying to uh, involve ourselves in doing something about the world because we saw that we were the rich world. We had all this material stuff and all the money and all the power. And yet we see every day on TV what was happening in Africa and Asia. And, and uh, when we saw that, we, um, you know, something went off in our heads saying that um, that disparity, that, um, you know, complete imbalance of the haves versus the have-nots, something wasn't right about that. We wanted to do something about that. Um, and so uh, we started looking out at the world. And I looked out at the world and I, the, you know, there were certain offerings out there. One was taking a long-term career path towards like the United Nations or something like that, or one of the big existing groups like UNICEF, et cetera. And it would take you a long time to get somewhere with it. And we all looked at those and thought they were a little bureaucratic and a little bit dated. And we were looking for something more, more exciting. And lo and behold, we started hearing about this crazy organization, Doctors Without Borders, people who were you know, not doctors, just doctors, but nurses, other healthcare workers, logistics people, administrators, people who believed in the stuff we did, who thought there was a bit, some injustice in the world, wanted to do something about it. And here were these people who just were going to do whatever they could, stop 
doing whatever they could and go overseas to the worst affected places and try to do something about it and stand up for um, uh, what needed to be stood up for. And so it was kind of a natural for us. We became very excited about it. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. So you kind of really have made like genuine and significant change in the world through creating this um, a branch of Docs Without Borders in North America. Do you have any tips for people who, you know, kind of look up to you in terms of making aspiration into action kind of thing? Well, thank you for the nice words. Um, we are, I am, and we are very proud of what has happened with Doctors Without Borders. It's a very important organization. It fills a, a gap in the, in the world, if you will, geopolitical scene uh, that is so important. And, and um, you know, we, uh, we hope one day we don't have to have an organization to do this kind of stuff, that things get better. But I'm afraid over the next uh, many years, we're going to still be in high demand. And uh, so we have to double our efforts and keep working in that area. And I guess that speaks to uh, a tip, I guess, is that you try to find something that you're totally passionate about. Try to find something that you, you believe in and you just, you, you dream it up. You dream up what you think you could do. Uh, and most people, here's your aspirational tip, right? Most people kind of trip themselves up, kind of say, oh, I just can't do that. Now, that's too much. That's too big. Or how could I possibly do that? And it's almost, you know, 90-something percent of the time, it's that internal self-doubt that really stops people from trying to do these things. So I would say the first tip I would give you is just follow your dreams. I mean, it sounds corny, but really do that. Just dream it up. Don't stop yourself from dreaming. Dream expansively. Figure out something because the world has to keep changing and your generation is the generation that's going to change it for the future. But don't, don't say you can't do something. Don't, don't sell yourself short in the beginning. Don't stop dreaming. Just dream it up and then take the disciplined, concrete steps you need to do to get there, which in your case may be you know, finish university, finish your training, become the whatever kind of professional you want to become because that gives you a certain... Um, currency in the world, a standing in the world, a certain know-how gives you something tangible that you can share with people. But again, that's, that's the tip I would give you. Just dream it up. Don't get in the way of your own dreams and then figure out how to get there. And truly anything is possible. We just, we were a bunch of people who said, Hey, uh, you know, this is uh, this is a biggie, but, but we think we can figure out how to do it. And basically people let us do it. We didn't know you're not supposed to be able to do that. We didn't know you're supposed to be a big, you know, expensive world organization first and have all this experience. We, we knew what we believed in. We wanted to do something about it. And the good thing about Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières, is that it's an organization of young people, you know, or at least young, certainly young thinking people who, who, who go with that idea, who, who just, frankly, again, as corny as it sounds, they do want to change the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love what you said about dream expansively. That's that's a great kind of um, mindset to be in. So uh, during your first year working as a field um, a field officer, is that what you call it? Oh, I guess you're in field placement. Sure. Okay. Field working placement. in the field. Yeah. Sure. Um, so you lived in Cambodia for a year, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, so while you were there, what specifically were you doing to help um, rehabilitate its healthcare system and like? How kind of as an external consultant to their system did you facilitate change? So, you know, Cambodia is this amazingly beautiful country filled with uh, very peaceful, wonderful people. And honestly, to this day, and I always say this, I don't understand 
how the things that happened there actually happened with such a peaceful, wonderful people. But um, I don't know how you want to put it. The country went absolutely berserk uh, in the face of geopolitical tensions from the Vietnam War and the U.S. bombings of the countryside in Cambodia. Uh, you know, the, the population turned against the West, turned against all those wars and was looking for something completely different. And that created a vacuum, a power vacuum. And so groups like the Khmer Rouge and KPNLF and all these other groups were able to move in and, and sort of lead the people in a different direction. It didn't take them too many months before that whole new leadership, especially by the Khmer Rouge, went absolutely psychotic. It went insane. And more than a million people died uh, directly or indirectly because of war and famine. Um, and so you had a country that was, uh, by 1979, absolutely completely decimated, something that very hard for Westerners, people living here in Hamilton and elsewhere, you know, can even imagine what that was like. But I, I walked around those villages completely flattened by war, etc. So this was a country that was broken. Uh, the infrastructure did not work. It was lawless. Um, you can't turn on a tap and get clean water. You can't turn a switch and the electricity works. There wasn't a reliable food chain supply. And of course, there was no nothing uh, functioning to a great extent in terms of medicine, hospitals, etc., especially in the countryside. So there was a brand new province created called Bantimenche in the northwest near the Thai and uh, Laotian border uh, that um, you know hadn't had any support or help for almost 20 years at that point. And we marched in and we were there to support their, the fledgling efforts that were going on to rebuild the provincial health care system, which started with... Um, rebuilding a hospital, a bombed out hospital that had chickens and goats in the wards and um, wow. no supplies and nothing working, no running water, no electricity and all kinds of soldiers with guns around. And, uh, you know, that's what we were presented with. And we, uh, we started with that and we started with the very basics. We said, let's, let's make the infrastructure of the hospital work, right? Let's get water. Let's have some sterile procedures. Let's have some basic supplies. Let's have some basic treatments to basic uh, problems that happen medically. And let's obviously work hand in hand with the local people. I mean, I, I remember I spent about the first month every day spending a couple hours at the cafe learning how to speak Cambodian or Khmer, mm. because that way you're able to understand from the local people directly what's going on and what you need to do instead of hearing it from someone else who has their own agenda or isn't on track with what we're trying to do. We built it from there. We started vaccinating. We used the hospital as a, as a, uh, as a, as a starting point and tried to earn trust. And I think we got that. And then more and more people came to the hospital and we were able to push hard on a pediatric approach and a mother and child approach, uh, which were already to some extent working quite well. And we were able to support that. All the time, Emily, we learned as much as we were giving. We were, we were blown away by what they were doing and they taught us and we taught them and we came together. And it was, I was very lucky to have uh, such uh, amazing leaders locally so that what we were trying to do actually uh, was on track because they guided us and, uh, and had a lasting impact. That's great. Um, that's great that you guys have a lot of local participation. Do you have sort of like a specific proportion of medical personnel working for MSF that um, are locals, like locals to the area that you're focusing on? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of look at it this way. Uh, if you want to look at it from our perspective, uh, the Westerners going in there, it's, it's typically in a place like I just described, a team of four. You'd have a, uh, you would have a administrator, okay? And you'd have a logistics person, 
and you'd have a nurse and a doctor and the team of four would be the MSF component. But for those four people, there's going to be another 10, 20 or 30 local people, physicians, midwives, car drivers, people who give you security, people who can fix electricity, people who can transport vaccines, on and on and on. So overwhelmingly, it's uh, the local people who outnumber the foreigners coming in. And that's an important thing. MSF, you know, in the beginning days, we were sort of Rambo cowboys going in there and all the focus was on us and we knew that wasn't right. The focus really should be on the local people in every single way. And uh, we've done a better job in the the last uh, numerous years of of recognizing the role of uh, local people if you don't if they're not really running it if they're not really doing it we're going to go one day and then mm-hmm. nothing will be there still they've got to be the ones to own it so we support them when we can you know other times in a big emergency you just do whatever you can and it doesn't work out so neatly every right. single time that's the nature of the problems mm-hmm. um and so it sounds like kind of when you went to cambodia it was a very obviously like unstable place. Probably a lot of the places you go are pretty unstable. But are there any um, circumstances under which MSF will refuse to enter a situation? Like, is there any kind of protocol surrounding those decisions? Yeah, I mean, when you have to be realistic, right? And, and if things are so bad, right? Um, and it's happened in various places in Somalia, in, in Afghanistan, and certainly in, uh, in Syria, where we are targeted we're targeted. MSF oh. as an organization is targeted. Our people, our doctors, nurses, et cetera, are the targets of, of bombings, of, of shootings, of whatever it is. And uh, although we will save this as a last resort, and we, we, there's many things we can do to negotiate our safety and the safety of the people we're working with and the locals we're working with hand in hand. If that's the case, you simply can't work there and we're not willing to risk the lives of people volunteering with MSF, whether they're national local staff or expats who are coming in like myself uh, there's just a reality there at some point that doesn't happen very often but it is it it has to happen when it's necessary and when it does happen it's a pretty pretty intense uh, international statement it means things are so bad in that country that they're targeting a completely apolitical right right fiercely independent organization that is only there to improve the health care of the local people we have no other agenda and uh and so we get to stand up and say that loudly. And often that can bring about some change and better safety for us. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So are there any like specific medical fields that Doctors Without Borders sort of recruits the most? I guess my guess would be like emergency physicians, but or yeah. they're also kind of like public health. What kind of physicians are generally um, needed? No, I think you're on the right track there, Emily. It is, you, you, you pick the specialties that match the need there, right? So somebody who's a, uh, you know, a hematologist, geneticist who can only work in a big city hospital in North America or Europe, we don't really have too many jobs for those people <laughs> on the front line. We always have jobs for pediatricians, for public health doctors, for surgeons, for anesthetists, for obstetrician gynecologists. Uh, we have, you know clearly want uh, anybody who's a physician, nurse, other healthcare uh, expert who has worked in these places before, who understands those kind of the unique needs that happen in situations like that in the cultural context, et cetera. So we like people who have been to those places, probably who have already at this point worked with another organization and have some experience. We know they can appreciate it. We know they can survive in these places and do well and bring something really helpful to uh, the local situation. Um, so, 
and and as time goes by, there are more and more fancy kind of physicians and and others who are needed. Uh, we're doing studies. We're doing some leading edge technology. We're doing some telemedicine. We're doing um, much more in in the zone of um, psychiatry and psychology and people affected by trauma at war, etc. Right. So it'll always be changing. But the bread and butter is what you were hinting at. It's emergency is it's, it's basic doctors with tropical medicine experience if you will public health doctors mother child focused physicians right interesting um so you just mentioned telehealth and uh from what i gather you are a pretty big advocate for the importance of um <laughs> tele telemedicine um do you think you kind of give an explanation of what you mean when you refer to telemedicine yeah i mean telemedicine telehealth tele-anything really just means a digital version of what you would normally do in a normal bricks and mortar world. So, um, you know, when you're in the middle of Cambodia or anywhere, uh, normally what we do is we're seeing one person at a time and we're, we're, we're seeing them and we're near them and touching them and seeing them and we're helping. Um, but you don't need to do that to have a big impact on healthcare for people. Uh, uh, huge issues are always just about basic diagnosis and treatment planning and what you should do and testing. And we're in a day and age when everything from a tuberculosis test to a, uh, a blood smear to an x-ray to ultrasound uh, to telepsychiatry visits, et cetera, all of this can be digitized. All of this can be put securely on the web and then something magic happens. It means that geography disappears. And when geography disappears, it means me in the middle of Cambodia and I don't know what I'm looking at, which happened frequently, and I didn't have the expertise and I really needed what I could have had back home, which is a hallway consultation or send somebody down to the clinic or pick up the phone and ask a question. We didn't have that there. We just had a couple of textbooks with us. Uh, nowadays, of course, now we are instantly linked to the richest resources of healthcare all over the world. And so you can get a supersized specialist from Boston or Toronto or McMaster helping, talking, sending, interpreting data to somebody in an extremely remote location. And uh, to me, that's a paradigm shift. And that's, I, I got to see the importance of that because I used to be stuck in the middle of these places with no way to get that knowledge, no way yeah. to help the people in front of me. So I really understand the power of this and I, it's, it's exponential. It's going to get better and better and better. And we're pushing hard, uh, you know, to make sure MSF benefits from the tremendous potential of telemedicine. Right. And have you seen that? I mean, of course, we've seen telemedicine gain huge um, popularity during COVID. Um, has that occurred worldwide as well? Like, have you seen MSF sort of adopt telemedicine kind of more fervently during this pandemic, like even in terms of social distancing um, in places that are kind of conflict-ridden? Yeah, I mean, you, you're seeing it grow. You're seeing it grow because it has to grow. We have to do our job. We have to make our contributions uh, under our mission. And when you can't, go somewhere freely and see somebody and touch people and do all that. You got to do it a different way. So yeah, we're seeing it. Are we seeing it as much as North America? Probably not as much as North America because here we have the infrastructure of everybody's mm -hmm. got a phone and a computer everywhere. And we were pushing hard to get telemedicine going. And finally the, the, the pandemic just let it go explode. I don't think we're seeing an explosion yet, but I think we're going to, I think we're, we're going in that direction Oddly, Doctors Without Borders is a bit of a Luddite organization. You'd think they'd be the first organization to adopt telemedicine and all these digital technologies, but because of the nature of work we do, because we're 
so sensitive culturally because we're in difficult situations because people don't always trust it that way. They're much mm -hmm. more in some of these countries, just the here and now. And when you're seeing somebody physically, given what many people have been through, that's how they want to do it. Uh, there's a little hesitation on our part. And, um, and so I'm trying to change that. Other people are trying to change that. On the other hand, I have always have the greatest faith in the actual patients around the world and the patients that we serve in Africa and Asia. Um, I think that they will carry the day eventually. They'll see that this is, uh, has great merit. It works. It's trustworthy. It's a tremendous, it's somebody said it was like a godsend, right? Suddenly, you know, for years and years, they're just trying to, um, you know, grow their communities, you know, sort of one telephone pole at a time and they can't afford too many telephone poles. And that's how slowly mm -hmm. you can be now connected to the rest of the world. Throw that all away because everybody can have a, a simple uh, cell phone now and smartphones are, are becoming ubiquitous all over the world. And as soon as you do that, you're putting the power of the entire world's internet with instantaneous uh, translation and, um, and artificial intelligence driving human understanding. And it absolutely is going to absolutely transform healthcare worldwide. That's great. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, you know, you heard it here. That's my prediction. It's already, <laughs> it's already happening. Yeah. That's interesting that you, I hadn't even thought about kind of the cultural aspects of people being a little bit more hesitant to mm -hmm. um, partake in telemedical procedures. Um, so I'm sure that's kind of made social distancing in places that are maybe a little bit more sensitive, a bit more tricky. Um, have there been any changes to protocol in the wake of the need to social distance? Yeah, you know, MSF is pretty darn good at this stuff, right? We led the world's response um, to the Ebola outbreak in the DRC about three and a half years ago. Uh, really, the world bodies participated, but they just, we really did an amazing job. They're extremely proud of what we did there. And that was really our foray into um, understanding, you know, isolation, strict isolation, all the barriers that you need to, to do. So that really has become sort of, you know, um, sort of a, um, you know, something, well, that we're, we're good at and we're familiar with. And so jumping over to COVID was um, a pretty easy jump for us to be able to do this kind of stuff. And uh, it's different in every country. Uh, but it's worth pointing out right now, if I can, that the, um, you know, COVID here, we're, we're so lucky in Southern Ontario and the rest of Canada, even compared to the United States, compared to other countries that have done uh, poorly. We don't really know what's happening in many of the countries in Africa. India has a huge toll right now. Um, and, and many, many countries are really going to have a, a toll from COVID that that is, um, is, is, as so often happens, it's going to be harder there than it is here. And they're not going mm -hmm. to get the vaccine as quickly as we can. They don't have respirators to save people's lives with. And um, so, again, it's the rich world uh, versus the uh, less industrialized world uh, who are going to have a harder time of it. And that's one of the things we stand up for. We want to make sure that health uh, care access is a truism for everybody on earth. That's a big job, though. Huge job, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's a good thing that you guys are doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much. That this was so fascinating to hear about all your experiences and about what MSF is doing and has done historically. Um, I so appreciate you coming on our show. It's really nice to meet you, Emily, and 
good work on section, and uh, I'm glad we were able to inject a little international thinking into what you're doing. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. That was Dr. Richard Heinzel.